Carol and her passing was the beginning of this Dharma talk. We, the, the sense that we all had, uh, you could feel the room be different when I said that Carol had died this week. You'd feel the room, and everybody got, oh. It's a moment of uh, attention that reminds us of what's fundamentally true is that we're here for such a brief time and that our uh, our lives really um, could be, as Carol's were, as, um, a teaching for the people who are coming next after us. Um, and in fact, I had some sense of that when I was thinking. I didn't know that Carol had died before I came. But I had some sense of um, what I wanted to say is that the enterprise that I think we're all doing is trying to figure out how do you do this life well? And how do you teach it to the next person? Um, I was talking to somebody on the uh, telephone yesterday who said, uh, and I said uh, in response to what they said, I said, I think I'd use that as the title for my uh, talk tomorrow. person was talking about uh, the uh, tremendous support it was to have sangha, to have community, to have groups that you studied with and dharma buddies that you studied with. And she said, it's wonderful to um, hang around with like-minded friends. I said, that's a great phrase. I said, I think I'll call tomorrow's Dharma talk, hanging around with like-minded friends. <laughs> and I thought, I wonder if the Buddha would like that, if that's too casual. <laughs> then later on in the day, I was uh, thinking about it all being a matter of holding hands. I'll tell you some stories about holding hands. And the first of the story we'll have as it's... Uh, um, as a, the central image, uh, the phrase, dame la mano, give me your hand. And I thought maybe that's what this talk is. It's called dame la mano, give me your hand. Um, in the ways that we take someone's hand and take them where they need to go or support them or give them our strength when their own strength isn't available to them. And then really what I wanted to maybe begin with was um, talking about uh, really looking deeply. This month's copy of uh, the Shambhala Sun magazine, which I like very much, has a beautiful picture of Thich Han on the cover and uh, uh, talking about practice. And uh, the article and how he describes it is practice as uh, the practice of looking deeply, looking profoundly at something. Um, there's a um, we we usually translate mindfulness. We mindfulness is the translation of the word um, vipassana. It's also uh, also, it's also often translated into English as um, seeing clearly, practice of seeing clearly. In French, it's translated as, uh, or at least I saw one translation of it, as vision profonde. And I like that much better than seeing clearly. That we, we call it clear, the practice of clear seeing, vision profonde. Is mud is has the sense not of seeing clearly. I, I think to myself, I take off my glasses, and I wipe them. More or less, could see clearly, but I don't always see profoundly. I don't see what's behind. What we see superficially, often I do, and make a decision. Even um, you remember last week, I uh, uh, read to you. I, Tremendously moved, I think you were too. The story about the miners in that uh, coal mine being um, interviewed afterwards. 
and uh, how touching it was to read how they cared for each other, how they tied themselves together so that they, if they, if they had drowned, it wouldn't be a burden for people to uh, find their individual bodies, how they uh, wrote notes to the, their family and put the notes in a lunchbox so that if they drowned and the lunchbox remained dry and intact, their notes which basically said, I love you, the same notes that people wrote in the, the same message that people left on cell phones, on, on answering machines, when they died in airplanes or in the World Trade Center, that fundamentally our legacy for people when we leave them is, I love you, there's nothing else really to say. Um, and how touching the article was, and how wonderfully heroic the, the miners were, that they somehow kept each other's strength up, and I, I read in the paper this morning uh, a further uh, elaboration. In fact, it was so cold and they were wet. It was 50 degrees in there. And they kept shifting their bodies around tied together so that they'd keep each other warm. And different body parts of them would stay warm so that after all that 72 hours, they did not have significant hypothermia. And the, the whole, the image of that, these nine men, shifting themselves around to keep each other's body warm is so inspiring and heroic. So I was thinking to myself, if I look at that article, and I just read it, it's an article about heroism, and it's tremendously uplifting. If I look at the article a little deeper, I think to myself, what are they doing there mining coal? How come people are mining coal now? 280 feet under the ground in a time when, in fact, we have the technology to use solar power and wind power and other kinds of clean power to run all the machines that we need to run and everything that we need to do to keep everybody warm and lit and dry. Why are these nine men down under the ground jeopardizing their lives? Why is it the only thing they can do, apart from being farmers in that part of the country, depleting the earth, jeopardizing their health, taking their life in their hands, ruining their lungs, um, going down there for 12-hour shifts, living under the ground in that way? making very little money, actually, but twice as much money as if you work on the top. So they need to make that decision. And how much of what they're doing, why are they down there, and how much of that depends on the greed of uh, those people whose fortunes depend on the energy industry continuing the way it is. So, on, so at first read, the article is tremendously uplifting. If I look a little bit more deeply into it, and I think that, then there's the next level of looking and say, okay. Then uh, I become feeling despair. First I feel really uplifted by the heroism. Then I feel despair. What are they doing in that hole in the ground? And what are we doing to, to allow that to be keeping on going? And then if I look a little deeper and I think, well, how am I going to deal with this despair? I have only to look over on my desk and see the latest newsletter from the Rocky Mountain Institute and Amory Lovins and people like that who are the forefront of um, the media people who are putting out information about clean and wholesome and earth-saving kinds of um, alternatives to that kind of energy. It's not like uh, it's not like people. There are people who have not given up hope. There are people who are keeping on working to publicize the fact that clean and wholesome alternative forms of energy are available, and they're doing it in a way that makes a difference. You know, I've often felt myself over the years to be allied with noble causes that went nowhere, uh, that uh, 
that failed and they became more desperate about standing with a candle in an extreme wind and nothing is going to happen. But in fact, the entire Pentagon has changed their light bulbs from fluorescent lights to, uh, from incandescent lights to fluorescent lights, saving the government, I think, $8 million a year or some enormous amount of money. And the piece of information now being disseminated on the emails and through newsletters like the Rocky Mountain Institute, which, by the way, you can look up on the internet and subscribe to and read about them. They're not the only people doing that kind of work, but they are wonderful people for decades now doing that work. And uh, remind ourselves that if everyone in this country turned their thermostat down to 68 degrees, and changed all of their light bulbs and did not drive an SUV, we would end our reliance on Middle Eastern oil. That's all it takes. 68 degrees is warm enough. You put on a sweater. You change the light bulbs. They burn way longer. You have to change them twice as much. And we, most of us, are not out riding over desert dunes, you know, that don't really need to do that. So you can look underneath that. Keep on looking and keep on looking and keep on looking. There isn't, a, there isn't a place where you can rest, actually. You don't come to a bottom. Um, if we don't stop, you can always look closer and closer and closer. It's easy to stop. Sometimes you want to stop because you're in a good place. Like... Um, um, I was caught up short a little bit this morning. I was reading last, yesterday's newspaper. And it's just come to light that... Um, I was a little dismayed, so I'm sorry to tell you this dismayed story, but can't stop. Like, immediately after 9-11, on that day in New York, some of the news broadcasts were very heartwarming. It said, all of a sudden, New Yorkers are out of their selves. They're looking at each other in the eye. They're taking care of each other. It's all of a sudden become noble. People looking after each other instead of themselves. People really did heroic acts. All the time people are doing heroic acts. I, uh, well, all the time people are doing heroic acts. As I said, that three heroic acts that I just saw on the front pages of the papers recently came to mind. But yesterday's article said it also happened right after 9-11, and it's just now come to light, that people who discovered that they could do uh, uh, withdrawals from the ATM around the, an ATM machine that was around ground zero that was disconnected from its phone connections from the bank that it was connected to, so there was no way for the bank to verify that there were actually these funds. And people withdrew way more funds than they actually had. They just took tremendous amounts of money out of the ATM machine. A significant number of people. Not an astronomic number of people, but I've forgotten. 60 or 70, did you read, did you read the same paper? So 60 or 70, something like that. And they have all the names of these people, and now they'll prosecute them. And it's sort of demoralizing to find that two seconds after we feel dismayed, people are saying, okay, now I'll do a little looting. You know, the buildings are still burning, and now I'll do a little looting. You know, that it's dismaying, but the truth is, it's true, you know. And it's not, and I, I really am clear when I read that article that it doesn't stop with that. I don't read it and say, well, look at that. There are 60 looters in New York. I think to myself, uh, how do I loot? You know, what are the ways in which I think to myself, well, I could bend the edge around here, you know, with whatever. I wouldn't do that. And so, oh, I wouldn't do that. I think, but what would I do, you know? Would I say, because I uh, 
went to New York to um, uh, the bat mitzvah of my cousin, and while I was there, I dropped in and talked to my publisher. Does this now become a business trip? And do I, de you know, what do I do with my, you know, do I, what now become, what do I do with my, uh, the amount of money that I paid for my ticket? And what should I think about that, you know? Actually, would I have gone to see the publisher if I hadn't gone to the bat mitzvah? You know, and does it make it, you know, what should I think about? It's very hard to be an ethical person because we are all one step. I, I don't know about you, but I am one step uh, away from making a mistake. Greed, hatred, and delusion uh, are sort of confusion better. I like that word better than delusion. Are alive in me. And uh, I think, uh, well, you can think for yourself. Maybe not in you, but in me. <laughs> and about looking closely and saying, what's really, keep on looking. There's no place where I think we can stop. I can't. There's no place where I can stop and say, okay, this is it. There's more, there's more, there's more. There's always something to look at. You know, in, uh, in Buddhist talk, we would call that the factor of investigation, looking closely. Say, what does this mean? What more can I see? On every level, you know, I remember uh, at one point in my own contemplative practice, uh, because meditation practice, in addition to uh, the really hopeful goal of practice, which is wisdom about the causes and the end of suffering, so that we will suffer less, cause less suffering, and make the world different. That's what it's about. But in addition, especially with uh, meditative practice, it's often a trip. Many people got interested in meditation because uh, physically um, it has the potential sometimes of being very trippy and uh, very interesting. I think it was the... 1970s response to the uh, pharmacological medicinal experiments of the 1960s. And uh, at some point we said, well, we'll do that another way, you know, and we'll just do it with paying attention. And uh, there are some very extraordinary things to experience about the way consciousness works, you know. It's very bright, it's very light, there are all kinds of magical mystery things happen in very profound meditation. And I can remember some event, who even knows whether it was an event, but it was so interesting. And uh, I remember in an interview with my teacher Joseph Goldstein, I remember probably I was, ple I was really pleased with myself because some new consciousness event happened. And I explained it to him, and he was certainly appreciative enough about it. But then when I got all finished, and then when I got all finished, he said, and there's more. And I thought, oh. Now, first of all, uh, I think that and there's more, which was designed to keep me looking and not you know, just sitting there and coasting away in my pleasant scene, whatever it was. It was a good pedagogical, um, it's a, first of all the truth, and it was a good pedagogical uh, intervention at that point because it's actually, my response to it is based on greed. There's more, okay. <laughs> Where is there more? I'll take it if there's more. I'll have it. Go for it. More. Yeah that there's no end, as the Buddha said, there's no end to desire, it's bottomless. We do not become sated. You know, we have the feeling after Thanksgiving, this is it, I'm never eating for a thousand years. And then that night at 10 o'clock, we're rummaging in the refrigerator, you know, that it's, it's just like that, you know, we cannot keep this body too full and we're, I, anyway, I'm, I'm trying very hard to stop saying we, we is preaching talk. I want to just talk what I know. I am easily seduced. Um, I'm seduced by uh, new experiences and by exciting experiences. Look over there. You could do this. You could have more. You could have this. You can try that. Yet. Wait. 
And there's a way in which I think it's wonderful that we're seduced. I think that uh, life is so difficult. If we didn't get seduced by our parents into living, how would we do this? Mm -hmm. If we didn't want to see, in fact, what's going to happen in the world? It's in a desperate shape. But, and I'm really interested to see how it comes out. And every day, I can't think, I think to myself, I hope I end my life without a struggle like Carol did. I really do. I want, I want to end it that way. And I want to end it without a struggle and still with a sense of poignant dismay that I won't see what's in tomorrow's headlines or what's going to be tomorrow on every level. Just because it's so interesting. The story of life is so interesting. Who is going to clean up the environment? Who is going to figure how to ultimately get coal miners out of the ground? How to fix up lives so that they don't have to be, so that they can be productive without jeopardizing their own health? Someone will figure it out. People are amazingly inventive. I think the, the, the seducibility, I think that maybe that ability to be seduced is really connected to what the Buddha would have called the faculty of investigation. What's that? And what we might call, uh, just as regular folk, the ability to wonder. You know? Somebody must have, somebody surely from the beginning of time looked up and saw birds flying realizing that flapping our arms isn't going to do that, and thinking, I wonder how human beings could fly. People wondered that enough to figure out, probably with who knows how many failed experiments, how to fly. It's not a hundred years yet since the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk. I think it was 1904 or 1906. Now look what's happening in a hundred years. People fly. Four or five hundred people get. I don't know what's the most people get on a plane, Joe. Four hundred people? Or, or more. Yeah? Four fifty people get on a plane. A big iron bird with four hundred and fifty people get on it that they even all get on and in an orderly fashion sit down. You know, it's it's a flying apartment building, you know that Think about it. And it takes off, and it doesn't hit anything usually on the way, and it lands. You know, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And somebody figured it out, how to do that. Gives me enormous uh, faith to think that people will wonder, I wonder how I could do that and make it better. I wonder how I can fix that. Uh, I have uh, friends who are passionately involved in supporting the research for um, stem cell research because their now 11-year-old child has um, acute diabetes. And um, with a pump and an insulin pump, uh, they have to wake this child still every two hours during the night to do her blood sugar. She's 11 years old. She goes to school, she swims, she competes, she's a regular person, and her whole family is on duty all the time to make sure that she stays alive. She also goes to Washington and testifies about the need for stem cell research. Someone is figuring out somewhere how to teach. They, they, my friend, uh, who's the mother of this child, was explaining to me how it works. They take a piece, they, they, they take a cell. They take a, 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 a cell and they take the person's DNA. They will take Tessa's DNA when this happens. Take one cell from an epithelial cell from her skin, because every cell has all the DNA. Put it in a stem cell that's um, ready to multiply itself. Take out the nucleus, put in Tessa's DNA, teach it to be a pancreas in some way, 
inject it back into her, and it'll make her new insulin-producing pancreas. And may it do that before her organs are deteriorating. And somebody has to, all of us, do you remember last year we all of us gave a donation to the diabetes research? We'll do it on sometime soon. Because there's no end of ways that we can support people who are thinking so hard to make life better. That actually is one of the things that sustains my faith. I want to go back a little bit and talk about the end of last week. Such an interesting thing happened at the end of last week. I thought about it uh, during the week. Um, I was feeling very passionate last week about um, the way in which we can really when we seek really, do really, when we seek really, take care of each other, and how easily confused we are. I remember I talked about the minors. Also talked about my great pain, about what's going on in the Middle East now, with the level of confusion escalating. And the level of dismay I feel about uh, about people who are, in fact, cousins killing each other. And I was feeling somehow, um, I, I, I was feeling that it was really important to talk about that level of dismay. I think we all share it. And just at the end, in a quite a lovely way, uh, I was about to end talking, and uh, Susan was raising her hand so excitedly, and a few other people as well, and they had things to say about um, events that were happening right then that were important to know about, uh, that, that in fact, that Chachmat HaLev, that very night, there were, uh, there were, there was to be an Israeli, uh, uh, an Arab, a Palestinian, uh, a Sufi sheikh, and um, anyway, there were going to be dialogue, peace dialogue happening in Berkeley. And then two or three other people said, and what's more, this is happening. And what's more, uh, Sherry Robinson and Paul Ray have written this book to let us know that in fact, more people actually are thinking of creative ideas and really have faith in the creativity of human beings to pull this planet out at the last minute than don't have that faith. And I felt really what an important end. As if, it's as if we operate as one body here. I feel that often. You know, If I come in and I am tired, I feel like I use your energy to teach. And, um, I feel like we have a, a kind of a shared collaborate, not a kind of a, a shared collaborate enterprise happening here. And if my faith falls down for a minute, I can depend on Susan and a few other people picking up the energy at the last minute. It's as if, it, it, it's, it's as if you know, if one person by themselves stumbles and they're an adult, they catch themselves, but if we are one person or one heart, court, sort of collaboratively, if I am losing it here, three people will pick it up over there. And I thought that was such an important moment, you know, that uh, it happens, I think, because I thought about it a lot afterwards as a process <laughs> thing. Not so much the fact of this was happening in Chachmat HaLev and this was happening somewhere else and this was happening somewhere else. Not in so much the data of the particular facts, but in the process of the event. The fact that when we come amongst friends, uh, 
and we hold each other in love, we hold each other up, and we sense each other, we feel each other, we see each other, and we, it, it, it's the, it, it began me to think about the whole question of um, holding each other's hands, uh, really sensing each other out of uh, um, just our shared love for each other, our sense that we see each other or we share the same faith with each other. So really the, sh the faith, I think, if I think to myself, people say, well, what do you have faith in? Really in the ability of human beings to connect with each other. I think it's really in connections that we become alive, that um, we have the sense sometimes. Uh, I think we're alive when we think somebody really sees us for who we are, when they see past what we, past the first view, whatever that is past even the second view, whatever that is. We see us to be, each of us, uniquely the human being that we are, and sense in some way that uh, we're all human beings. I remember, I'd, I'd forgotten to remember this this morning, I remember it now. Do you remember there was an email that I read to you uh, just a couple of, maybe a week or so after 9-11, when planes started to fly again. And there was an email from a, that went through the internet, everybody got it, about someone who had taken one of the first flights flying again. And the pilot had come on and said some quite uh, reassuring and astounding things about, okay, folks, we are now off the ground. We've been, you know, we now have uh, clearance to fly, so now I'm in charge, and we're all in charge, and this is our plane, and we're all going to get us there, and if anything untoward happens, do the following, stand up, grab your pillow, do this, do that. And it, 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 you know, it was even controversial, should he have done such a thing? I thought it was very rousing and very wonderful. I'd like to think that uh, whoever was in the command of the ship had deputized everybody to take care of each other. So the piece that I really remembered though this morning is that the, the email went on to describe when the pilot was finished with his tough and rousing and reassuring talk. The flight attendant came on and said, uh, now ladies and gentlemen, what I'd like you to do is everybody reach in your pocket, take out your wallet, open it, and show your family pictures to the person next to you. Yeah, you know, that that really, we will not bring down a ship if we see that the person next to us has family. Was the sense of that? Uh, what if the whole world suddenly took out their wallet, out of their pocket, and showed everybody, "Look, I have a family." Not everybody has got children, but everybody's got. Everybody came out of some place. Even have no even kin family that are blood kin. We have people that we relate to. We have people who know our name. There are, it pains me to think about people in the world who no one knows their name. And I think about that sometimes. But most of us have someone who knows our name. That if they heard just as we heard this morning, Carol Solar died. If they heard so-and-so, so-and-so died, they'd say, oh, I know them. It would be a loss. Because it's, it's as if not only are we one body here, so that if my energy starts to fall down, Susan will pick it up and three other people will pick it up. What about if we realize that that web of connection that's here it's really the web of the whole world. Take out your wallet, show it to the person next to you. Show them you have family. Then everybody would know that they're carrying the whole world. Each of us is responsible for holding up our piece of the net of the whole world. 
I'm not holding it up by myself. I'm holding it up with everybody else. But I can't put down my peace because I have my peace. To keep it up in the air. That's how I got around, by the way, to thinking about the image of, uh, of the hands that just came to me. I was thinking about, I want to tell you about an event in the Safeway store that happened uh, yesterday, I think, uh, up near where I live. And I think um, so, so many of my stories happened in the Safeway store. And uh, I began to think that it might, I, I'd li I, I like the fact that they happen in the Safeway store, not necessarily the, uh, because of, well, because I think this is the safe way to live, okay? <laughs> They're all about living in a safe way. So <laughs> it was, I know it was 11 years ago, because my granddaughter is um, 12 now. And I was feeling very excited about the fact that uh, my daughter-in-law was pregnant. Uh, this was going to be my second grandchild. And uh, I walked out. I live up in uh, in Sonoma County, and uh, the Safeway in the town where I shop is uh, the town where I shop is about uh, fifty percent uh, Latino. So the 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 um, um, workers in the Safeway, I'm happy to say, are all bilingual. And. Uh, uh, the folks in this tremendous array of wonderful foods to buy there. It's a really great Safeway with lots of uh, Mexican foods and Central American imports. It's a great Safeway. And I was walking out of the Safeway one day, and, and uh, Trish was pregnant, and just in front of me were a, a woman and a, quite a small child, a toddler, walking out near her, uh, as a child would walk near, but not holding her, walking near her, and uh, just in front of me and approaching the curb, which, uh, where they had to now step down into the curb and cross across to where the par cars were parked. And without looking down, but it, sensing that the child was there, of course, she reached down her arm in quite a normal way and said, Dame la mano. And the child reached up and did it. And there was something so touching about that. I just got it. That that's, first of all, I got it that that's what we do in the whole life. Dame la mano. And just, I'll take you across the street. I'll take care of you. I also realized in that moment that I had to learn to speak Spanish because my, grand, my, 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 my daughter-in-law is Nicaraguan. My uh, grandchild was going to grow up bilingual. I speak French, but not Spanish. And that I needed to be able to say to her as well, dame la mano, so I learned. So it was nothing. It was like a five-second, two-second event in the parking lot. Reach down the arm, you say, dame la mano. I said, oh, okay. And I have to speak French, Spanish as well. And so there's a whole other enterprise from it. But the image itself, I don't know who the woman was, she, her back was to me. First of all, opened me to that whole piece of my life so that I now speak. Uh, certainly well enough to speak to two-year-olds and three-year-olds <laughs> and uh, five-year-olds, maybe not philosophical discussions, but, you know, enough. Um, and, um, and also, that image of holding got into my mind a lot. So that just the other day when I was holding my new granddaughter's hand, I was thinking we're holding down here and then we'll hold this way and then we'll hold this way. And someday when I'm old, she'll hold my hand and support me up. Last week I told you about that procession of nuns coming in, celebrating 75 years of profession, 50 years, 25 years. And the oldest one, Sister Antoninus, got support. She walked on her own feet, but holding two people's hands when she walked. Because she's a little, tiny old nun. Someone's going to hold our hands from the beginning to the end. 
and say, come with me, I'll take you, I'm here, you're not alone, I'll show you the way to go, I care about you. My mother died when I was 23, so I was grown, but not very old for having a mother die. She was in her 40s. And when somebody says, do you remember your mother? Of course I do. But what I most remember is I remember how the inside of her hand felt. And um, I'm happy for that. You know, I can recognize that feeling. I think we're relational and that fundamentally we reach out. Have you ever had anesthesia for something? You know, a couple of times in my life I've needed an anesthetic for some sort of surgical procedure. I know for sure that the very last thing I said was, hold my hand. Didn't you? Yeah. Doesn't even matter if I know the person or don't know the person, but you want someone to hold your hand. That was one Safeway story. The second Safeway story, which happened yesterday, which I loved, I've been thinking about, it was the biggest teaching for me. Um, this is my new baby book. I'll show it to you. I'm so proud. Yeah, this is it. Um, and it isn't out in the stores yet. It will be it at the end of this month. And um, so uh, it's called Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. And uh, uh, it's a book about the paramitas and the perfections of the heart. And um, I'm hopeful people will get the title. Twice I've made a mistake. And people have said to me, interviewers on the phone, have said to me, what's the name of your book? And I've said, pay attention, for goodness sake. And then I sound just like a disagreeable old woman. So <laughs> now I'm much better. So now I'm, I'm very careful. I say, well, my book has a, my book has an interesting title. The title of my book is. <laughs> so I don't make that mistake. But uh, really, it's, uh, it's, uh, because it's for the sake of goodness, you know. It is a doublantant. I mean it to be, but uh, for the sake of goodness. And it makes the point that when we pay attention, we are kind. And it makes that point in ten different ways. We are generous and moral. We renounce. We are wise. We are energetic. We are patient. We are uh, truthful. We are determined. We practice loving-kindness, and we really can rest in equanimity. The ten paramitas. And I, uh, and I love it. I'm very happy with it. I'll be very happy to go around teaching it in the fall. I will be very happy if you all call book passages and say, please put one aside for me. They don't have them yet. But... Uh, It'll be especially wonderful if you buy it from book passages. It's better to buy it from book passages. First of all, you are supporting the local bookstores, which are which is a very good thing to do. And second of all, I really um, it's really a way to tell the Bay Area that this is a book that you're interested in, because what book passages reports is what makes a difference. So I'm now telling you private and inside information, also telling it onto the tape, but that's the truth. It makes it, it, it makes a difference that you buy it there and not over the internet. So, so if you call and say, put one aside for me, that's great. Anyway, I wrote a story in the beginning of this book. I, t I, told, I told in the beginning of this book how all of those ten paramitas really are permutations of kindness, each of them. They're just different forms in which kindness manifests. And that um, energy, when we lend our energy to somebody else, by connecting with them in some important way, we feel what they need, we connect with them, they get your energy. And I remembered it yesterday because of a particular event in the Safeway which reminded me of that event 
of three or four people picking, feeling my energy at the end of last week and coming in to rescue it and pick it up through their connections with me. So I tell the story very early in this book uh, where I talk about all... Uh, I'll read it to you a little bit. Here's a list of the paramitas. Generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, equanimity. I love this list. I love knowing that... It says that right here, by the way. <laughs> I love knowing that all these qualities are the natural built-in inclinations of the human heart. We aren't born with the inclination to play the violin or tap dance or do needlepoint. We have the physical equipment, ears, arms, eyes, hands, feet, and the mental equipment, memory, and sometimes talent, to learn all of those skills. My sense, though, is that in cultures where those activities aren't done, no one thinks about doing them. Human beings, however, do not need lessons in friendliness. We are relational. When we aren't frightened into self-absorption, we look out for each other. We take care of each other. And I love it that all of these qualities seem like gifts that people give each other. Perhaps generosity, the first of the parameters, most immediately evokes the idea of giving something to someone else. But I think all the parameters are gifts. They're mutual gifts. The givers and the receivers benefit. When we act morally, we give the people we meet the gift of safety and, untroubled by the pain of guilt, we experience what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. By practicing renunciation, we give ourselves a double gift of modulated desires, itself a relief, and, as a surprise like the toy in the box that makes the Cracker Jack even sweeter, an increased appreciation of what we already have Think of, people, think of successful renunciates in 12-step programs, people who have given up a way of life that didn't work for them, inspiring people newly contemplating a different life, in the same way that the sight of a monk, free of suffering, inspired the Buddha to become a renunciate and then offer his life of teaching as a gift to others. Imagine how our lives might be if, even, if everyone had even a bit more of the wisdom that comes from seeing clearly. Suppose people everywhere simultaneously stopped what they were doing and paid attention for only as long as it took to recognize their shared humanity. Surely the heartbreak of the world's pain, visible to all, would convert us all to kindness. What a gift that would be. And think for a moment about how easy it is to feel other people's energy levels. I imagine we are all mood antennas. Everyone's personal energy level changes all the time, of course, but some people seem naturally able to transmit by word or deed or even vibe uplifting messages. Celia, one of the clerks in my local Safeway market, seems able, regardless of the news of the day or the mood in the store, to consistently broadcast this message. Take heart. Life is good. She initiates conversations even as she scans my groceries that indicate her interest in me, something as easy as, how are you? Our meetings are always cheerful. I think Celia keeps her own energy strong by using every possible moment to connect. Patient people enjoy the pleasure of, of saying to whoever is feeling anxious about delays, restaurant servers, clerks waiting on the telephone to get your credit card verified, dry cleaners who were sure your sweater would be ready. It's okay, these things happen. Patience in a rushed world is a shared relief. Witnesses to patient transactions as well as participants all get to calm down. Truthfulness levels the playing field by giving everyone involved the benefit of equal information. The very act of telling truthfully, as much as we know, makes it clear that we feel safe and establishes us as a friend. I think of friendships as relationships without guile in which people give each other the gift of intimacy. Loving kindness depends on forgiveness. It definitely works reciprocally. When I am able to forgive myself, which is not always easy, I am kinder to everyone, including myself. And we demonstrate equanimity for each other. Imagine this scene. At the midpoint of a retreat at Spirit Rock Meditation Center where I teach, I am part of a group of 10 or so people walking silently, as we do in retreat, 
to the dining hall for lunch. We all stop as if by tacit mutual decision to admire a family of two adult quail and 12 very new babies, successfully managing to cross the road, watching the father and mother quail scurry and squawk back and forth until they've accounted for all of their babies. There are giggles all around. I am thinking and guessing that the folks around me are also thinking, this is amazing, quail can count. <laughs> and I'm also guessing, since we are midway through the retreat and we are all surely in touch with our personal sorrow, that in that moment, our capacity to appreciate quail is sharing space with whatever pain is in each of our hearts. We know it about ourselves, we intuit it about each other because we all have the same heart. And we are all, in that moment, just fine. Nothing needs to be said. We go on to lunch having reminded each other that the heart can hold everything in it. Equanimity is possible. Peace is possible. So yesterday, I was walking into the Safeway, that very Safeway, and Celia was not far from me at a checkout stand and not in the middle of checking anybody out. Uh, so she was looking at the door as I came through, automatic doors open, I walk in, and from quite a distance away, maybe as far back as David is, she sees me at the door and says, hi, Sylvia, how are you? And I say, Celia, I'm great. I said, wait a minute, Celia, I have something to show you. Stay right there. And I have this, just this one copy of the book. It's just come. So I rush out to my car. I get the book. I come back. And I say, listen, Celia, I'm a writer. I just wrote this book. I just got it. You're in the book. Look. <laughs> and I show it to her. And, and so she reads that little paragraph. And she said, oh, that's very nice. Thank you very much. You know, But, you know, that was it, and uh, so I go on, uh, so then I, that's fine, that was it. I put the book in my basket, and I go around and I shop, and I, and I figure again to check out through Celia's stand as I'm checking out. And I come up to her, and not a word about the book, which is the good part of the story, you know. I'm, she's scanning my groceries, and she said, how's your husband? And I said, he's fine. She said, you know, I haven't seen him in a long time. I'm glad to hear that. I said, he used to always come here when Paul Root was in charge of the wine department. I remember he used to have these long discussions with Paul about wine. And uh, uh, now that Paul isn't here anymore, and we sort of talked a little bit about Paul Root and had his new store on the other side of Fieldsburg. We finished the whole transaction. And not a word, of which, which is really the good part of the book, you know. Uh, and and I finish, and I'm just walking away with my groceries. You know, you know, they put the groceries in the cart, and I'm pushing it away. Finish. She said, take care of yourself. I said, you had a great day, Celia. I'm going away. And I hear her, the person right behind me, say to himself, to say to the next person, a completely cheerful voice, Buenos dias, Senor Alvarado. Como esta? And she's off and running with Senor Alvarado right behind me. And I thought, this is great. Celia doesn't get caught. Remember when we started and I said, let's make a prayer for Carol that she doesn't get caught, that she stays where she's going on course. Celia didn't get caught. Show this. I think to myself, she's going to say, oh, wow, a book, you're a writer, where's it going to go? People are going to read it, oh, I'm so thrilled. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> it's nothing. She was not caught for a second. How's your husband, is what she wanted to know. And what's he doing about buying wine these days, now that Paul Root isn't here? And hello, Senor Alvarado. It was great. <laughs> I thought to myself, what a, what a lesson in the potential of getting caught. <laughs> it 
Well, David, it is. I think that that's what we're all doing here. We are practicing paying attention. I think if we paid attention, all of us, we'd go out, I mean, really, we'd say to everybody, the whole world, pay attention for goodness sake. Look what we are doing. We are killing each other. That's a bizarre thing to do. We are killing each other. We are raping the land. We're polluting the, 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 the air. We're polluting the water. We have generations of people who have to come after us. We are all in pain. We have all offended each other. Everyone has offended us. We do it because greed and hatred and delusion are part of the human apparatus. If we looked around, I have such a sense. If we saw deeply into each person, we would see that this whole entire globe is a hospital. This is a hospital for recovering people. You know, if you walk into a hospital, how you lower your voice right away, certainly, you know, especially like a veteran's hospital where people have been wounded. We have all of us been wounded in every possible kind of war, and we have wounded people. And really, I have the sense that we're all noble, fundamentally noble people. We don't mean to. And we have astounding capacity to recover. And just as we would in a holy place. You know, sometimes I, th I thought about this just last night, and I remember saying to some, I actually told it to somebody just last night, I was getting, that's a whole long story of how it was, but I was saying to people, you know, just in this moment I've changed my view. I said, I used to think about, sometimes you could look at the whole world, this whole globe, and say, you know, it is one continual, it's a cemetery, really, when you, when you think about it, because it has the thousands of generations, thousands maybe, who knows, hundreds of thousands of generations of human beings since the beginning of human beings. Their bones are interred under here. So all the time we are walking around on the bones long disintegrated, but the remains of everyone who's ever been. And you know how when you walk in a cemetery, you don't walk on the graves, you treat it as holy ground. I think, what if we treated this whole earth like it was holy ground, and we walked on it carefully, like holy ground, and we treated the land and the water and the air like how you would treat a shrine? or a holy ground, or a cemetery. Then I thought, okay, we should be walking with our shoes off in this holy ground, and we should recognize that in addition to it, everyone walking on this holy ground is recovering. It's a hospital for being a person. And it's hard to be a person and make it to the end. And really what we end up having to do is hold each other's hand. It's hard. You know, like if you visited a hospital and someone was recuperating, and you said, you want to go down the hall? And they said, well, I'm not sure I can stand up. And you say, well, yes, you can. I'll hold your hand. And from the beginning to the end, we're going to say to each other, Dami Lamana, give me your hand. And we'll hold each other's hands. And we'll walk up and down every possible hall. And we will make the biggest effort, I think, not to trip each other as we're walking. And if we do, and when we do, we probably will, as we make mistakes. We get confused. We'll pick each other up. We'll apologize. We'll dust each other off. Say, let's start again. Because there isn't any alternative there isn't another hospital down the block, this is it. <laughs> or another holy ground, this is the only one we've got. It's 11 o'clock. Would you reach out and hold someone's hand, please?
Make the biggest prayer you can for the person whose hand you're holding, whether you know them or not. Make them the representative of all the beings in the world, people near and far. Their hand is connected to six billion other hands. Make whatever prayer you want. Be well. Que te vaya bien. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.